Hello. Welcome to the Bore You to Sleep podcast. The podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. Is there something interfering with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? I know there have been times in my life where I've struggled with sleeplessness, which is why I strive to help people everywhere with theirs. I'm proud to have partnered with a new sponsor, BetterHelp. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist, which doesn't take long at all. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional counselling done securely online. You can schedule weekly video or phone sessions in the comfort of your own home. You can also log in to your account anytime and send a message to your counsellor when you need. You'll have access to a broad range of expertise in BetterHelp's counsellor network which may not be locally available in many areas. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change counsellors if needed. Visit trybetterhelp.com forward slash bore you to sleep. That's trybetterhelp and join over 500,000 people taking charge of their mental health. Special offer for Boy to Sleep listeners with 10% off your first month at trybetterhelp.com forward slash you to sleep. Tonight's reading comes from Sticks and Stones, a study of American architecture and civilization. Published in 1924, this book was authored by Lewis Mumford. My name is Teddy, and I aim to help people everywhere get a good night's rest. Sleep is so important, and my mission is to help you get the rest that you need. The podcast is designed to play in the background while you slowly fall asleep. Special thank you to everybody who left me a lovely review during the week on iTunes. Scaried 908 I'm glad you never slept better. Sarah, thank you for calling the podcast a lifesaver. Bionicblaz383, thank you for your lovely review on iTunes. Aquian Servidor, thank you for your lovely review in Spanish. And thank you also to Podbean listener Tamiru Gobana15 for simply saying hello. Hello to you too. And for all the Anchor supporters and Patreons, I thank you for your continuing support of the show financially. If you do appreciate the podcast, a lovely way to say thank you is to leave a five-star review in iTunes or your podcast app. Even one sentence helps out. 
It would also be awesome if you are able to share the podcast with someone who you know that may also need a good night's rest. If you would like, you can say hello to me at boyetosleep.com where you can support the podcast. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram at boyetosleep. In the meantime, lie back, relax and enjoy the readings. Sticks and Stones, a study of American architecture and civilization by Lewis Mumford. Acknowledgements. This is an attempt to evaluate architecture in America in terms of our civilization. I have not sought to criticize particular buildings or tendencies. I have tried rather by approaching our modern problems from their historic side to criticize the forces that from one age to another have conditioned our architecture and altered its forms. Lest my purpose be misunderstood, I have left out illustrations, for a building is not merely a site, it is an experience, and one who knows architecture only by photographs does not know it all. If the omission of pictures lead to the reader occasionally breaking away from the orbit of his daily walks and examine our development in cities and buildings for himself, it will be sufficiently justified. This book would not have been put together but for the persistent encouragement and kindly interest of Mr. Albert J. Nock, and it was in The Free Man that the first five chapters, in somewhat briefer form, appeared. My hearty thanks are likewise due to Mr. Charles Harris Whittaker, whose private help and whose admirable public work as editor of the Journal of the American Institute of Architects, have both laid me under a heavy obligation. My intellectual debt to Messrs. Victor Branford and Patrick Geddes will be apparent to those who have followed their work. In the concluding chapters... I have been stimulated and guided in many places by unpublished reports and memoranda written by Mr. Clarence Stein, Mr. Benton McKay and Mr. Henry Wright. My friendly thanks are also due to Mr. James Henderson, Mr. Geroid Tanqueray Robinson and Miss Sophia Wittenberg. Besides the essays in The Freeman, some of the material in Sticks and Stones has appeared in the journal of the American Institute of Architects, Chapter 6, in The New Republic, and in The American Mercury. I thank the editors for their permission to draw on these articles. Chapter 1. The Medieval Tradition 
For a hundred years or so after its settlement, there lived and flourished in America a type of community which was rapidly disappearing in Europe. This community was embodied in villages and towns whose mummified remains even today have a rooted dignity that the most gigantic metropolises do not often possess. If we would understand the architecture of America in a period when good building was almost universal, we must understand something of the kind of life that this community fostered. The capital example of the medieval tradition lies in the New England village. There are two or three things that stand in the way of our seeing the life of a New England village, and one of them is the myth of the pioneer. The conception of the first settlers as a free band of Americans throwing off the bedraggled garments of Europe and starting life afresh in the wilderness. So far from giving birth to a new life, the settlement of the northern American seaboard prolonged for a little while the social habits and economic institutions which were fast crumbling away in Europe, particularly in England. In the villages of the New World, there flickered up the last dying embers of the medieval order, whereas in England the common lands were being confiscated for the benefit of an aristocracy, and the arable turned into sheep runs for the profit of the great proprietors. In New England, the common lands were re-established with the founding of a new settlement. In England, the deporate peasants and yeomen were driven into the large towns to become the casual workers menials and soldiers. In New England, on the other hand, it was only at first with threats of punishment and conscription that the town workers were kept from going out into the countryside to seek a more independent living from the soil. Just as the archaic speech of the Elizabethans has lingered in the Kentucky mountains, so the Middle Ages, at their best, lingered along the coast of Apicalia and in the organisation of our New England villages. One sees a greater resemblance to the medieval utopia of Sir Thomas More than to the classic republic in the style of Montesquieu, which was actually founded in the 18th century. The colonists who sought to establish permanent communities, as distinct from those who erected only trading posts, were not a little like those whom the cities of Greece used to plant about the Mediterranean and the Black Sea littoral.
like the founders of the ancient city, the Puritans first concerned themselves to erect an altar, or rather to lay the foundations for an edifice which denied the religious value of altars. In the crudest of smoky wigworms, an early observer notes, the Puritans remember to sing psalms, pray, and praise their God. And although we of today may regard their religion as harsh and naysaying, we cannot forget that it was a central point of their existence and not an afterthought piled, as it were, on material prosperity for the sake of a good appearance. Material goods formed the basis, but not the end of their life. The meeting house determined the character and limits of the community. As Whedon says in his excellent economic and social history of New England, the settlers laid out the village in the best order to attain two objects. First, the tillage and culture of the soil. Second, the maintenance of a civil and religious society. Around the meeting house, the rest of the community crystallized in a definite pattern, tight and homogeneous. The early provincial village bears another resemblance to the early Greek city. It does not continue to grow at such a pace that it either becomes overcrowded within or spills beyond its limits into dejected suburbs. Still less does it seek what we ironically call greatness by increasing the number of its inhabitants. When the corporation has a sufficient number of members, that is to say, when the land is fairly occupied, and when the addition of more land would unduly increase the hardship of working, or would spread out the farmers and make it difficult for them to attend their religious and civil duties, the original settlement throws out a new shoot. So Charlestown threw off Woburn, so Dedham colonised Medfield, so Lynn founded Nahant. The Puritans knew and applied a principle that Plato had long ago pointed out in the Republic, namely that an intelligent and socialised community will continue to grow only as long as it can remain, a unit and keep up its common institutions. Beyond that point, growth must cease, or the community will disintegrate and cease to be an organic thing. Economically, this method of community development kept land values and property a low level, 
and prevented the engrossing of land for the sake of a speculative rise. The advantage of the Puritan method of settlement comes out plainly when one contrasts it with the trader's paradise of Manhattan. For by the middle of the 17th century, all the land on Manhattan Island was privately owned. Although only a small part of it was cultivated, and so eagerly had the teeth of monopoly bitten into this fine morsel, that there was already a housing shortage. One more point of resemblance. All the inhabitants of an early New England village were co-partners in a corporation. They admitted into the community only as many members as they could assimilate. This co-partnership was based upon a common sense as to the purpose of the community and upon a roughly equal division of the land into individual plots taken into freehold and a share of the common fields of which there might be half a dozen or more. There are various local differences in the apportionment of the land. In many cases, the minister and deacons have a larger share than the rest of the community. But in Charlestown, for example, the poorest had six or seven acres of meadow and 25 or thereabouts of upland and this would hold pretty well throughout the settlements. Not merely is membership in the community guarded, the right of occupying and transferring the land is also restricted, and again and again, in the face of the General Assembly, the little villages make provisions to keep the land from changing hands, without the consent of the corporation it being our real intent, as the burghers of Watertown put it, to sit down there close together. These regulations have a positive side as well, for in some cases the towns helped the poorer members of the corporation to build houses, and as a new member was voted into the community, Lots were assigned immediately, without further ado. A friend of mine has called this system Yankee Communism, and I cheerfully bring the institution to the attention of those who do not realise upon what subversive principles Americanism historically rests. What is true of the 17th century in New England holds good for the 18th century in the Moravian settlements of Pennsylvania, and it is doubtless true for many other obscure colony, for the same spirit lingered with a parallel result in architecture and industry. In the utopian communities of the 19th century, it is pretty plain that this type of pioneering, this definite search for the good life, 
was conducted on an altogether different level from the ruthless exploitation of the individual muckers and scavengers who hit the trail west of the Alleghenies. Such renewals of the earlier European culture as the Bach Festival at Bethlehem give us a notion of the cultural values which the medieval community carried over from the old worlds to the new. There is some of this spirit left even in the architecture of the Shaker community at Mount Lebanon, New York, which was built as late as the 19th century. In contrast to the New England village community was the trading post. Of this nature were the little towns in the New Netherlands, which were planted there by the Dutch West India Company. The settlers were, for the most part, either harassed individuals who were lured to the New World by the prospects of a good living, or people of established rank who were tempted to leave the walks of commerce for the dignities and affluences that were attached to the feudal tenure of the large estates that lined the Hudson. The germs of town life came over with these people, and sheer necessity turned part of their engineers to agriculture. But they did not develop the close village community we find in New England. And though New Amsterdam was a replica of the old world port, with its gabled brick houses and its well-banked canals and fine gardens, it left no decided pattern on the American scene. It is only the other country architecture of the Dutch which survives as either a relic or a memory. These trading posts like Manhattan and Fort Orange were as messes. Peterson and Edwards have shown in their study of New York as an 18th century municipality, medieval in their economy. Numerous guild and civic regulations which provided for honest weight and measure and workmanship continued in force within the town. In their external dealings, on the other hand, the practice of the traders was sharp and every man was for himself. Beginning its life by bargaining its necessities, the trading post ends by making a necessity of bargaining, and it was the impetus from the original commercial habits which determined the characteristics of the abortive city plan that was laid down for Manhattan Island in 1811. Rich as the Dutch precedent is in individual farmhouses, it brings us no pattern, such as we find in New England, for the community as a whole. Since we are accustomed to look upon the village as a quaint, primitive relic of a bygone age, 
we do not readily see that its form was dictated by social and economic conditions. Where the village had to defend itself against Indians, it was necessary to lay it out completely so that it might be surrounded by a stockade and so that the meeting house might be such a rallying centre as the bell tower or the castle was in Europe, or as the high temple site was in classic times. But in the 18th century, the Indian figured less in the scheme of colonial life, and along the sea coast and river, as at Wells Beach in Maine or Litchfield in Connecticut, the village became a long strip upon a high road, and the arable land stretched in narrow plots from the house to the water, so that the farmer might better protect his crops and his livestock from the fox, the wolf, the woodchuck, the hawk, the skunk, and the deer. I emphasize these points of structure because of the silly notion superficial observers sometimes carry away from the villages of Europe or New England, namely that their irregularity is altogether capricious and uneconomical, associated only with the vagaries of the straying cow. It would be more correct to say that the precise reverse was true. The inequality in size and shape of plots shows always that attention was paid to the function the land was to perform, rather than to those mere possession of property. Thus, there was a difference in size between home lots, which were always seated in the village and purely agricultural tracts of land, which were usually in the outskirts and in Dedham. For example, married men had home lots of 12 acres, while bachelors received only eight. Another reason for the compactness of the village was a decree of the General Court in Massachusetts in 1635, that no dwelling should be placed more than half a mile from the meeting house in any new plantation. Even irregularities in the layout and placement of houses, which cannot be referred to such obvious points as these, very often derive from an attempt to break the path of the wind, to get a good exposure in summer, or to profit by a view. All this was genuine community planning. It did not go by this name, perhaps, but it achieved the result. We have learned in recent years to appreciate the felicities of 18th century colonial architecture, and even the earlier 17th century style is now coming into its own. 
in the sense that it is being imitated by architects who have an eye for picturesque effects. But we lose our perspective altogether if we think the charm of an old New England house can be recaptured by designing overhanging second stories or panelled interiors. The just design, the careful execution, the fine style that brings all the houses into harmony, no matter how diverse the purposes they served, for the farmhouse shares its characteristics with the mill, and the mill with the meeting house was the outcome of a common spirit, nourished by men who had divided the land fairly, and who shared adversity and good fortune together. When the frame of the house is to be raised, a man's neighbours will lend him a hand. If the harvest is in danger, every man goes out into the fields, even if his own crop is not at stake. If a whale founders on the beach, even the small boy bears a hand and gets a share of the reward. All these practices were not without their subtle effect upon craftsmanship. Schooled in the traditions of his guild, the medieval carpenter pours his all into the work. Since sale does not enter into the bargain, it is both to his patron's advantage to give him the best materials and to his own advantage to make the most of them. If at first, in the haste of settlement, the colonists are content with makeshifts, they are nevertheless done in the traditional fashion not the log cabins of later days, but more probably wattle and daub huts like those of the charcoal burners in the English forests. In some points, the prevailing English tradition does not fit the raw climate of the north, and presently the half-timbered houses of some of the earlier settlers would be covered by clapboards for greater warmth. As in the 18th century, their interiors were lined with panelled pine or oak, instead of the rough plaster. No matter what the material or mode, the carpenter works not simply for hire, but for dear life's sake. And as a baker's dozen numbers 13, so a piece of handicraft contains not merely the workmanship itself, but a bit of the worker's soul for good measure. The new invention of the gambrel roof, which gave additional room to the second story, without raising the roof tree, is a product of this system, and the variation in its length and pitch in New England New Jersey and New York is a witness to the freedom of design that prevailed throughout the work. The 17th century houses, built at first with one or two rooms, 
and then as luxury increased and family needs multiplied, with as many as four, would doubtless seem unspeakably crude and mean to the resident of Floral Heights. Indeed, if our present requirements for housing were so simple, it would not be quite so difficult to meet our perpetual shortage. As a matter of fact, however, these early provincial houses were well up to the standards for a similar homestead in England, and in some ways were a distinct advance. Just as all the separate courses on a restaurant menu were a few hundred years ago cooked in the same pot, so the different subdivisions of the modern house were originally combined into a single room, which was not merely a kitchen, workroom and living quarters, but which also, at least in winter, served as a stable for the more delicate members of the barnyard. By the time America was settled, the division into rooms had just commenced among the better sort of farmer. The barn had split off from the rest of the house, and the bedchamber was becoming a separate apartment. As the 17th century lengthened, this division of functions became more familiar in the provincial house. Let us take a brief look at one of these 17th century buildings. Let us say, the John Ward House in Salem, which still survives as a relic. As one approaches the village on some November day, when the leaves are no longer on the trees to obscure the vista, one feels the dynamic quality of medieval architecture, a quality altogether different from the prudent regularities of the later Georgian mode. It is not merely a matter of painted gables, leaded, diamond-panned windows, overhanging second stories, much as these would perhaps remind us of the medieval European town. What would attract one is the feeling, not of formal abstract design, but of growth. The house has developed as the family within it has prospered and brought forth children as sons and daughters have married, as children have become more numerous, there have been additions, by a lean-to at one, and the kitchen has achieved a separate existence, for instance, and these unpainted weathered oaken masses pile up with a cumulative richness of effect. And that concludes tonight's readings. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this story. And if you're not quite falling asleep yet, you're welcome to listen to another episode. In the meantime, I'll be working on bringing you a new episode very soon. Good night.